Well, as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, turn to John 13 with me, John chapter 13. We left off last week, John 13, verses 31 through 38, which is the perfect text for us to prepare to celebrate the Lord's table. Because verses 38 through 31 through 38 specifically deals with the breathtaking wonders of Christ's cross. Started looking at this last week, the breathtaking wonders of Christ's cross. We have sung about Christ's cross this morning. We are now able to hear from Jesus speak about his coming cross, prepare us to celebrate it as well. John 13, 31 through 38. You know the scene. And Jesus is with his apostles in the upper room. It's Thursday night, and Christ is only hours from his death. And as verse 31 opens, there's a major shift in the story because Jesus is finally now, finally alone with the faithful. Judas has been dismissed back in verse 30 after receiving the morsel, we're told, and being commanded by Jesus back in verse 27 to leave the room. Judas went out immediately. And then this note, it was night, not only nighttime as opposed to daytime, but it was nighttime in a symbolic sense. The darkness of sin and evil and hatred has now fallen upon the land as never before. The sun of righteousness is about to set. Satan, the prince of darkness, will soon have his way with Jesus. In the words of Luke 22, the power of darkness, the devil himself has been given the freedom to do his worst. But in verse 31, in this room, it's not dark, it's light. The light of the world is now speaking the light of truth, the light of righteousness, the light of love. This is Christ and he's taking full advantage of these final hours he has alone with his apostles and he's preparing them for his coming death. From John 13, 31 through chapter 16, at the end, Jesus speaks what has been called his farewell address. And it's like nothing else you will read in all the scriptures. It's the most personal of all of Jesus's words. It's the most private of all of Jesus's instructions. It's filled with the greatest promises Jesus will offer. Promises of the coming of his Holy Spirit, promises of his return, even promises of the writing of the New Testament. These are the most unique four chapters in all the Bible where Christ, in the words of J.C. Ryle, where Christ is freed from the painful company of Judas and he opens his heart to his little flock more fully than he has ever done before. Special instructions, wonderful promises, and they extend even to us today. 
And so Jesus begins his farewell address where he must by speaking of his death, but not explaining what is going to happen to him physically. He's already explained that numerous occasions. No, here he explains what his death means in the theological realm, the spiritual realm. He explains the why of his death. Why must he die? He explains the what of his death, what his death will mean, not only for his followers, but also for his father and himself. What it means also for his followers as we bring his gospel to this world. These are the breathtaking wonders of Christ's cross. And last week we focused in on the first one. There's three of them. We focused in on the first wonder of the cross. Wonder number one, why must Jesus die? Because the cross is the greatest display of Trinitarian glory. Jesus must die because the cross is the greatest display of Trinitarian glory. That's where Jesus begins. Look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God, the father will also glorify him, the son in himself and will glorify him immediately. This is a needed reminder for us. It's a reminder that the cross is not primarily about our salvation. That's part of it, but it's not primarily about our salvation. Primarily the significance of the cross is the glory of God. It's about the son glorifying, exalting, honoring the father because of his love for the father. And it's about the father glorifying, exalting, honoring the son because of the son's submission to the father. We unpacked these verses in some detail last week. Like no other event in history, like no other event, it is the cross that reveals the father. The cross is God's greatest revelation of himself to man. It puts on display in vivid color, vivid color, divine mercy and justice. Never ending faithfulness and care. Shows us the Father's loving compassion and unflinching holiness. We see his saving grace and his perfect wrath. This is his glory, his perfections, his attributes. These are most clearly seen as Christ submits himself to his father unto the cross. And yet, what do we read in verse 32? Not only is the cross the greatest demonstration of the father's glory, but because of the son's glorifying his father through the cross, because of that, because of his submission, the father will bestow glory and exaltation and honor on his son. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him through Christ's sacrifice, and he was, 
then God the Father will also glorify his son. This is the glory Christ will receive when he assumes his messianic throne. The future glory of being coronated as king of kings and lord of lords. And all of this centers on the cross. It's amazing, in the midst of the darkest evil and most heinous death and grossest sin, God's glory, both the Father's glory and the Son's glory, they shine most bright. It's revealed like never before. It's the first breathtaking wonder of Christ's cross. The cross is the greatest display of Trinitarian glory. Now, some last week asked, well, where's the Holy Spirit in all of this? You're talking about the Trinity. Well, stay with us for a few months. We're gonna eventually get there in John 14. All right, number two, second wonder of the cross. We'll focus here this morning. The second wonder of Christ's cross that we see here. Wonder what, number two, the cross is the only sacrifice for sin accepted by God. The cross is the only sacrifice for sin accepted by God. Again, back to those questions. Why did Jesus need to die? Why did Jesus command Judas, what you do, do quickly. Get at it, start it. Why will Jesus have to leave these faithful apostles alone later this night? Why did Jesus allow the powers of darkness to have their way with him? Why did Jesus let himself be bound by the Roman guards? Why will he not defend himself before an evil court? Why? What's the significance of all of this? Answer, because Christ knows the cross is the only sacrifice for sin God will accept. Now, before we develop this, you understand how this wonder, this message, how important it is for our world. Because every other gospel, every other gospel teaches the exact opposite. Teaches that man can earn God's favor. Man can work for God's righteousness. Man is able to merit God's forgiveness. We see this in a variety of ways from the pluralist who believes many paths lead to heaven to the universalist. All, all will be saved regardless of what they believe to the inclusivist the gospel truths, saving truths can be found in other religions other than Christianity, other than Christ. To the secularist who believes that God can be appeased, he can be appeased through charity or virtue or some humanitarian work. The message is the same. The cross is unnecessary. In fact, it even goes further than that, doesn't it? It's not simply that the cross is unnecessary, but it's also that the cross is actually offensive. It's offensive. The cross, which is actually sinful man's only hope, it's what offends sinful man most. 
Let's ask the question why at this point, why? Why is the cross so offensive? Why? Well, it's because the cross displays the glory of God. The cross displays the glory of God and God's glory always, always irritates the proud heart in every way possible. So think about it. The cross's ugliness, it's ugly. The cross's ugliness, it's blood, it's gore, it's pain. All of that shows just how helpless we are to gain God's favor. The cross's violence shows how much God is angered at our sin. The cross's victim shows just how holy God is. Even if sin is credited, credited to the perfect son, the son of God's love, still the father must pour out his wrath upon him. The cross's exclusivity shows just how needy we are for God's grace and mercy. Let's contrast this with what we saw last week. Not only is the cross the greatest display of God's glory, but the cross is also the greatest display of mankind's sinfulness and powerlessness and unrighteousness and helplessness and defenselessness before the one true and living God. And so it's foolish to the unbelieving mind. It's an offense. It's always been this way. 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is what? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. We preach Christ crucified to the Gentiles, foolishness to the proud, fallen mind. The cross is foolish. Why? Because the sinner, unbelieving sinner, cannot fathom his inability to reach God. You're telling me I can't do that? That's foolish. Don't you know who I am? He cannot fathom his inability to appease God or satisfy God. And yet that is exactly the message of Christ's cross. And it is offensive to the unregenerate sinner. It's no wonder Paul committed himself to not be ashamed of the cross. It's his commitment to not be ashamed of the cross. He knew the pressure from the world would mount for him to give up the cross's exclusivity. He was strong then, it's strong now. That pressure. This is why Paul determined, that's commitment. He determined to know nothing except one person, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Back to the point, because the cross is the only sacrifice for sin accepted by God. Let's develop this. This is what Jesus teaches on this final night. Start in verse 33. Let's just walk through this. Verse 33. Jesus begins, little children. It's an expression of Jesus's love for these men. Translate it as my dear children, my precious children. It's a phrase only used here, only used here in John's gospel. Why here? Well, because when Jesus leaves, these apostles, 
When Jesus allows Judas to betray him, when he does not resist the Roman soldier's arrest, it could easily be determined that Jesus did not love these men, that he was not fighting for them, that his arrest and trial and beating and crucifixion is gonna cause them pain and dread. So I allow this, Jesus. Don't you love us? And so Jesus assures them here that everything he will endure on this night will actually be an act of love for these men, these precious children. Again, connect this with what we saw last week. It is true, Jesus will go to the cross because of his love for his father's glory. That's primary, that's the primary motivation. But that's not his only motivation. He's also going to the cross because of his love for us. And just as a side note here, this fatherly love theme that Christ has for his own, it continues throughout this farewell discourse. Drop down to chapter 14, verse 18, 14, 18. Notice what Jesus assures these men. I will not leave you as orphans. I care for you as a loving father. Look at chapter 15, verse nine. Just as the father loved me, I also loved you. My love for you is compared to the father's love for me. That's how precious it is. He repeats himself in verse 12. I have loved you. Don't doubt my love for you when you see everything unfold and the pain mounts for you. Look at verse 13. Greater love is no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And by the way, you are my friends. Back to chapter 13. Every step Jesus takes towards his cross is because of his love. This is why chapter 13, verse one begins this way. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, the hour of his death, the hour to glorify his father, knowing that hour had come, notice the end of the verse, he loved them. He loved them to the end, to perfection. All of this is an act of love. And yet, because Jesus says, because of my love for you, because I love you, I must leave you. I leave you because I love you. Continue verse 33. I am with you a little while longer. Three hours perhaps before his betrayal, 10 hours before the cross. And then notice what Jesus says next. You will seek me. Indeed they did. Peter will follow Jesus to his trial. John will stand at the foot of the cross as Jesus dies. They will seek him indeed. But notice what Jesus adds next. As I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So this is shocking right now for them to hear. Where I am going, you cannot come. You're not able to come. It's impossible for you to come. You don't have the power for this. 
Now stop here for a moment. We have to determine what is Jesus talking about? What does Jesus mean here? Where is it impossible for these apostles to go? We need to figure it out because this saying, where I am going, you cannot come. This is something Jesus has said before in this gospel. Two other times. That's why, look at verse 33. That's why he says, as I said to the Jews, you've heard this before, I also now say to you. So the first time Jesus has said these words, it's back in John chapter seven. It's a warning. Jesus said to the Pharisees, for a little while longer, I am with you. Very similar language. Then I go, but watch what he adds. Then I go to him who sent me. That's a reference to heaven. You will seek me. You will not find me. And where I am going, where I am, again, heaven, you cannot come. It's a reference to heaven. The second time Jesus says this, it's in John 8. And then he said again to them, same audience, I go away, Jesus says. Again, referring to heaven. I'm going to heaven. Speaking of his ascension at this point. I go away and you will seek me and will, he adds here, die in your sin where I am going. Again, heaven, you cannot come. And so the knee jerk then, the knee jerk when we come to chapter 13 to say, well, he used this phrase to refer to heaven back in chapter seven, chapter eight. So he must be saying the same thing. He must be telling his apostles that they can't come with him to heaven. It's the knee jerk. The idea is something like this. After I die, after I resurrect, ascend to heaven, though you'll wanna come with me, you'll seek to, you can't come right now. Now, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think it's different. Same words, I think it's a different meaning. I don't think he's referring to heaven. I say that for four reasons, four reasons. Here's the first reason. Because there's a different audience in John chapter 13. It's a different audience. In chapter seven and verse, in chapter eight, Jesus was speaking to his enemies. But here in chapter 13, he's speaking to his little children, his precious children, it's a completely different audience. The atmosphere is not anger towards Christ. It's a love for Jesus. Second, there's a different context. Because Jesus' phrase, you will seek me in chapter seven and eight was used in reference to the Pharisees seeking after false messiahs. They reject the true messiah and so they seek false messiahs. That's not what Jesus means here in verse 33. When he says, you will seek me, they've already come, the apostles have already come to believe that Jesus is the true Messiah. So the context is different. Third, there's a different purpose in chapter 13. Chapter seven and eight, Jesus was promising spiritual disaster that's what the phrase meant, spiritual disaster. Chapter seven, you will not find me. That is to say, you will never enter heaven. Chapter eight, Jesus adds, you will die in your sins. Your future is eternal hell. But Jesus does not issue any of those warnings here to his precious children. 
And then fourth, there's a different tone. It's a different tone. Jesus' statement, you cannot come in chapter seven and eight, that was a statement of judgment. Again, I'm barring you from heaven. That's the tone. But that can't be the tone here. He loves them. They're precious. Indeed, they will be with him in heaven one day. So I don't think Jesus is using the statement, where I am going, you cannot come to mean the same thing that he meant in chapter seven and eight. It's a different audience, different context, different warning, different tone. So what does Jesus mean here? Where I am going, you cannot come. What does that refer to if it doesn't refer to heaven? Where can't the apostles go with Jesus? Where can't they follow him? Where is it impossible for them to go? Answer, Jesus is talking about his cross. He's talking about his cross here. Where I am going, my cross, you cannot come. That is to say this, for three years, you have followed me everywhere I have gone. For three years, you've ministered alongside me. For three years, you have learned from me and watched me and lived with me. You followed me when I called you to leave your fishing nets, to leave your tax booth. You followed me as I traveled throughout Israel. You followed me to Lazarus' grave when I raised him from the dead. You followed me into Jerusalem earlier this week. You followed me into this upper room. We've just shared a meal together. I've just washed your feet. You have followed me everywhere I have gone. But now, but now this is where our journey together ends. What I'm about to do and where I'm about to go, I must go and I must do alone. You cannot help me in what lies ahead. It's the path I must walk by myself. It's the cup of God's wrath only I can drink. It is a death only I can die. It's propitiation only I can make. Jesus is talking about his cross and his apostles could not follow him there. They were unable, they were powerless to go with Jesus because only Jesus could offer the sacrifice for sin his father would accept. One commentator put it this way, none were able to join him in his Passover death. Think back to John chapter one. Behold the lamb of God who comes. Lamb of God, the Passover lamb. He's gonna offer the Passover sacrifice. None are able to join him in his Passover death. No one could walk the lonely valley of redemption with Jesus. It's his path alone. This is the exclusivity of Christ's cross. There is no payment you can offer God. There's no payment that God will accept outside of his son's death. We are powerless to appease a holy God. This is an impossible task. 
There is no savior from sin, but the crucified Jesus. Only Jesus could exhaust God's wrath against evil. Only Jesus could satisfy God's perfect justice. Only Jesus could offer a once for all sacrifice for sin for all who come to him in saving faith. It's a work of Christ alone. I must go to the cross by myself. And this is brought home in verse 36. Don't you just love Peter? Just love Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going now? Peter knows Jesus is speaking about his death. He knows that. How do we know that? It's because the end of verse 37, what does Peter say? I will lay down my life for you. So Peter knows that Jesus is speaking about his coming death. Lord, where are you going? I'm just trying to make sense of all this. That is to say, why can't I come with you, Jesus, as you head to your cross? Why can't I come with you? Why can't I be there to shield you from your demise? Let me risk my life for you. If someone's going to die on this night, let it be me, not you. Let me perish in your place. Let me come with you. Let me walk this path with you. Notice what Jesus says, verse 36, where I go. It's a repeat of verse 33. Where I go, my cross, you cannot. Same word, it's impossible. You cannot follow me now. Peter, you don't know what you are saying. You don't have the power to follow me to my cross. You don't have the perfection to die in my place. You don't have the ability to accomplish what I am going to accomplish in my death. You cannot bear what I need to bear. You cannot endure what I need to endure. Continue verse 36. Oh, Peter, you will follow, the, but that's later. It's not now, it's later. I will die now, you will die later. Now is not your time. This is a prophecy from Jesus. This is a reference to Peter's coming death 30 years later. It was an execution very similar to Jesus's execution. Like Jesus, Peter would die at the hands of a Roman ruler. Like Jesus, Peter would also be scourged. Like Jesus, Peter would also hang on a cross. Tradition tells us he actually hung upside down on a cross. He said he's not worthy to hang in the same way as his savior. There's similarities, but there's a major difference, a major difference. Because when Jesus died on his cross, Jesus died as a sinless savior, as a propitiating sacrifice. But when Peter died, he died as a sinful yet forgiven martyr. It's a major difference, those similarities. That's Jesus's prophecy. This is why, look at verse 38. Jesus answered Peter's claim to die in Jesus's place. And Jesus answered with these words, 
Will you lay down your life for me? This is a theological statement. This is irony. Will you, Peter, lay down your life for me? This is substitutionary language. This is saving, sin-bearing language. We've heard this statement before. John chapter 10, remember what Jesus said. I am the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, only I can what? Lay down my life for my sheep. That's substitutionary saving language. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep cannot lay down their life for the shepherd. It's repeated in verse 15. I, only I can lay down my life. Only I can take upon myself the wages of your sin. Only the shepherd can die for the salvation of the sheep. So again, put it in these words. Peter, you do not know what you're saying. You want to lay down your life for me. Let me die in your stead. You want to lay down your life for me, but only I can lay down my life for you. And here's why. Because of verse 38. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. You can't die for me, Peter, because I need to die for your sins. You need my sacrificial death because you need my father's forgiveness. You're gonna deny me. This is the best of all the 11 apostles that are left. You're gonna deny me. You need my death because of your sin. I must lay down my life for you. Luke 22 includes this, what Jesus tells Peter here. It's, it's so telling. In Luke 22, Jesus says, I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. Here's what must be fulfilled. That I must go to the cross and be numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53. You cannot die for me because I'm the suffering servant who must die for you. I must be pierced through for your transgressions. I must be crushed for your iniquities. I must offer myself as that guilt offering. And we'll see this later in John 18. The way John records Peter's denial is unique to all the gospels. What John does is he records G, uh, John's, uh, who is it? Peter's, <laughs> Peter's denial and it'll go back and forth from Peter's denial to then Jesus on trial, back and forth. It's like split screen. It's the only gospel that does this. Why? Because it's explaining why Jesus is standing trial and going to the cross. It's because of, uh, it's because of Peter's sin. This is Jesus committing himself. Peter, it will be for your sin that I must go to my cross alone. And no doubt, this was a shocking prediction for Peter to hear. Must have sent chills down his spine. 
He couldn't imagine himself denying the one he loved. Couldn't imagine himself crumbling in fear. That's exactly what he did. We'll see it in John 18. Just as Jesus predicted, Peter denied Jesus three times and in so doing, he showed himself to be the sinner, the transgressor who needed Jesus to lay down his life for him, not the other way around. Again, to the question, why must Jesus go to the cross? Because we all are in need of forgiveness. Like Peter, we are all in need of this. We are all transgressors before God and the cross is the only sacrifice for sin God will accept. Only Christ can lay down his life for us. And folks, this is a lesson Peter learned well. This is why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter two that Christ suffered for you. Christ was the only accepted substitute for our sin. Christ suffered for you. Why? Here's why. Because he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Unlike Peter, Jesus was the perfect one, the sinless one, sinless savior. Which is why Peter adds, he himself bore our sins in his body. He laid down his life on the cross. Peter learned the lesson. There's nothing more offensive in our day than the exclusivity of Christ's cross. And yet at the same time, there is nothing more hopeful. The message of Christ's gospel is this. There is no payment for sin you can offer God that he will accept. There is no work you can do to reconcile, reconcile yourself to him. There is no offering you can make. There is no penance you can perform that will make you a child of God. And yet rather than that being bad news, it is great news because Christ has offered himself for all who will come to him in saving faith. J.C. Ryle has put it so well. Here's the quote. Look to anything of your own and you will never feel comfortable. Your own life and doings, your own repentance and amendment, your own morality and regularity, your own church going, your own Bible reading and your prayers, your own almsgiving and your charities. What are they all but a huge mass of imperfection? Rest not upon them for a moment in the matter of your justification. As grounds of acceptance with God, they are worthless rubbish. They cannot give you comfort. They cannot bear the weight of your sins. They cannot stand the searching eye of God. Rest on nothing but Christ crucified and the atonement he made for you on Calvary. This, this alone 
is the way of peace with God. And that's what we celebrate together as we turn to the Lord's table. Father, you have offered your son to us as the necessary payment for our sin. May that humble us and break us and raise us up in praise to you. May we come to the Lord's table this morning with thanksgiving. Thankful that we have a perfect savior. May we come in worship that we have a living savior. That our God lives but may we come humble because even now we are filled with great imperfections. We sin daily. We refuse the conviction from your Holy Spirit. We do not turn in repentance as we should. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us because of the sacrifice of your son that we could take of this in a right manner, with a worshiping heart. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.